Coming up on Tech Nation, it's one thing for science to tell us about how we age. But what can science tell us about reversing that, actually getting younger? We'll hear both sides of that coin today, first in a very specific science-focused follow-on to our recent interview with Dr. Andrew Steele about Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. And then Dr. Thomas Rando from the Stanford Center on Longevity and co-founder of Fountain Therapeutics tells us about their science and their efforts to potentially reverse the aging process. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2013, I spoke with UC San Diego professor Dr. Ajit Barki about denial, self-deception, false beliefs, and the origins of the human mind, which he wrote with the late Danny Brower, a genetics professor at the University of Arizona in Tucson. The question that Professor Brower posed to him nearly two decades ago now was this. With millions of years of evolution, why do humans have such complex mental abilities and other species do not? Instead of asking the usual question, which is what genetic differences or brain differences made us human, Danny turned the question on its head and said, uh, you know, there's a lot of very smart animals and birds that have been around for tens of millions of years and that are quite uh, capable of uh, remarkable intelligence, and yet there's only one human-like species. So how come there isn't a human-like elephant or a human-like crow by now? And his idea was the sort of the opposite of what you might normally think, that something was stopping everybody in their tracks and that we finally escaped and broke through. The first thing we always think of is self-awareness. But animals are self-aware as well, right? Correct. So, in fact, that actually supports the theory that is that uh, there's very good evidence in chimpanzees, uh, pretty good evidence in dolphins and some in elephants and some birds that they know who they are. They can recognize themselves in a mirror. Of course, we can never put ourselves in their heads, but there's pretty good evidence that they, are, they have a sense of personhood. They know who they are. That's been going on presumably for tens of millions of years. The next step beyond that is what we only be humans do, which is that uh, I not only know who I am, I know that you know who you are, and that I know that you know who I am, and so on. <laughs> and that the audience that may be listening to us uh, knows who we are, and that what we're thinking, and we're thinking of what they're thinking. So that's this thing called theory of mind. So the question is, uh, why didn't all these other species attain this? It sounds pretty simple, right? You're aware of yourself, or you're aware of the awareness of another self. And the basic idea is that the first time this happens to an individual in a species, the very first time, right now it seems very beneficial to us, but the first time it happens, it's actually a very negative thing. Because once another individual of a species dies, then this individual becomes aware of his or her own mortality. And that would be a very nerve-wracking and potentially an existential crisis. Most importantly, that would uh, diminish the chances that individual would mate and pass their genes on. And so that would be an evolutionary dead end. Now, this is the part of the theory that we cannot absolutely prove, obviously. We are saying that 
these things happened and went into dead ends. And the idea is that we humans finally slipped through by learning to deny our mortality, which made it possible for us to tolerate this knowledge of the deaths of others. You know, there's studies on chimpanzees that say that they recognize other chimpanzees as what's called intentional agents. In other words, they recognize that's another chimpanzee can react to me and so on. What the chimpanzee does not seem to be able to do is to put itself in the head, literally in the mental state of another chimpanzee. The ultimate test of that is what's called a false belief test. In other words, suppose somebody told you a lie, and I listened to that, and I knew that you had the wrong idea in your head. I would know that. In other words, I'm putting myself in your mental shoes, and that's something that uh, the other animals seem to fail at. This 2013 Tech Nation interview features Dr. Ajit Barkey, who, with co-author the late Danny Brower, wrote Denial, Self-Deception, False Beliefs, and the Origins of the Human Mind. Today, Dr. Varkey is a distinguished professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and co-director of the UCSD Salk Institute for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny. Yes, anthropogeny. It's the study of human origins. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we're doing a follow-on interview solely focused on the science Dr. Andrew Steele talks about in his book, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. Then, after we hear about every part of our body which is aging, how about rejuvenation? That's right, reversing aging. I speak with Dr. Thomas Rando, co-founder of Fountain Therapeutics, and a professor at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Andrew Steele. Andrew, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. Now, I have to say for people who say, Oh, uh, we just heard him. What's what's going on? And it's like, hey, we talked about the results of all the science in our last interview, but now I want to talk about the science itself. We are here today to talk about the science. Now, the subtitle of your book is The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. How new is the science you're talking about the last 10 years? And how, how different is it? than the science we were capable of having before. There's been a real transformation in the science of aging in the last 10 years. It's obviously a discipline that goes back, you know, as long as humans have been thinking about what it means to be alive. But actually the real progress has happened in the last sort of 10 or 15 years because we finally got this handle on what the aging process actually is. And in the book, I break it down into 10 what I call the hallmarks of aging. That's not my word. That's a word that scientists have used to describe the range of cellular, molecular, biological changes that happen inside all of our bodies, inside all of our cells 
And those changes go on to massively increase the risk of disease, increase our risk of death, cause the frailty, cause the, you know, the wrinkles, the gray hair, all the visible stuff that we can see that's associated with the aging process. And what's really exciting is by understanding these fundamental underlying sort of processes that are happening behind the scenes, we can help to intervene in those processes and hopefully slow down the whole of the aging process. Let's start with some of the ones that I think many people have heard of. Uh, so let's get them out of the way so they're they're not waiting for them. Uh, the first is DNA damage and mutations. It's like, wait a minute, I was born with DNA. I'm living my whole life. What do you mean DNA damage and mutations? And what does that end up causing? So every single one of our cells has this uh, massive length of DNA. And actually, it's quite surprising how much we have. We've got about 6 billion chemical letters called bases that make up our genetic code. These are A's, T's, C's and G's. That's just a, you know, the short name for these chemicals. And this 6 billion letter string actually stretches out to 2 meters long if you add up all the DNA inside your cells. And that's every one of your cells contains this. And it's condensed down into this tiny little packet in the middle of your cell called the nucleus. And inside the nucleus, you know, you might think of it as quite a benign environment, but actually the inside of your body is it's chemical chaos. There's, there's <laughs> proteins zipping around doing their stuff. There's, you know, the mitochondria generating the energy that makes all our, our bodies, you know, basically work. And the result of all these different chemical reactions, the DNA is in a surprisingly volatile, dangerous environment. And as a result, DNA gets thousands of bits of damage. Basically, these letters, these chemical letters get changed quite often because this has been happening to life for billions of years. We've got loads of different tools that can go in and repair that damage before it becomes a problem. But actually, what can happen occasionally is as, as we age, some of these repairs might go wrong or perhaps one of the pieces of damage goes undetected. And ultimately, this can cause mutations. So errors, sort of typos effectively in our DNA instruction manual. And this can probably cause a range of different age-related problems. But the most famous is probably cancer. And that's because once you give a cell a certain combination of mutations, and that turns on genes that tell the cell to carry on dividing, you can turn off genes that tell the cell, okay, you know, that's enough, stop dividing now. And obviously, what cancer is fundamentally are cells that just divide and divide and divide without receiving those appropriate stop signals. So if you get that wrong combination of mutations, that can go on to cause a tumor. So what causes DNA damage during our lifetime? Just being alive? Quite a lot of it is, yeah. I think we, we often think of the external causes. So these are things like, you know, if you smoke, for example, that can damage the DNA in your lungs. It can actually damage the DNA in the whole of your body. There's UV radiation from the sun, so that's why we, you know, should be slapping on sunscreen. But a huge fraction of those things come just because your cells are going about the regular everyday process of being cells. Some of that is the generation of the energy, because obviously you think about, you know, sugar and oxygen, the molecules that we use to generate our power. They're very reactive molecules, and they have to be if we're going to generate energy using them. But that means they pose a risk to basically everything inside the cell that's going on. And secondly, when your DNA divides, so when your cell divides, your DNA has to be replicated to make sure that both daughter cells, as they're known, have a full copy of that DNA instruction manual. And that means your body has got to go through and replicate every one of those six billion letters. And it's got to do so with absolute precision. And of course, although nature has become incredibly, incredibly good, it's the equivalent of typing like whole libraries out without making a typing mistake. Obviously, occasional errors are introduced. And so, you know, if you're going to be around with your cells dividing continuously for 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, then eventually, you know, something's going to catch up with you. Something can go wrong. Now, this plays into what we call trimmed telomeres. Did I say that correctly? Telomeres. Telomeres. So <gasps> telomerase is relevant as well. Ah! <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to get cards and letters about that, as they said in the old days. Okay, <laughs> tell me yeah. about it. 
So the telomeres are these protective caps on the end of our DNA. So that two meters of DNA I talked about is chopped up into 46 pieces, 23 from your mum, 23 from your dad. We call these chromosomes. And on the ends of each of those chromosomes, we can't have them just sort of flailing around inside the cell. As I already said, it's this chaotic environment. And so these protective caps exist. And they're just this huge long strings of thousands of repeats of the same six letter sequence, which is a TTAGGG, TTAGGG, just as far as the eye can see. And the reason that this is there is actually to correct a surprisingly sort of stupid thing on, on the part of evolution. So we think of evolution as this incredible optimizing process. But when your DNA divide, you know, uh, replicates when your cells are dividing, uh, your DNA is actually not able to be replicated all the way to the end. So what happens is that your enzymes will be duplicating and duplicating and duplicating. But at the very last piece of DNA, it can't quite make it to the end of the string. And so you lose a little bit of DNA every time your cells divide. Now, that could be a problem because your DNA is this instruction manual. It's, it contains all these important genes that tell your cells how to behave. But what happens is evolution has gone, okay, what I'll do is create this thousands and thousands of letters, which are basically irrelevant. They're just repeats of the same sequence. And so you can lose a little bit of that each time your cell divides, and that solves the problem. But as you can probably imagine, this is a somewhat temporary reprieve to that problem. So the telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter throughout life. And we've observed that people with shorter telomeres, short telomeres for their age, tend to be at higher risk of age-related diseases. They're at higher risk of dying. There's even some quite morbid research that shows that the twin, if you get two twins, the one that has the shortest telomeres is more likely to die sooner. So it really does seem as though these, this reduction in the length of your telomeres has something to do with the aging process. Now, there's nothing you can do about that. You're born. You just keep reproducing, right? What's interesting is actually a lot of the sort of common bits of health advice that you hear do have an impact on telomere length. So if you eat well, if you exercise, you can actually even observe that if people have exposure to stress in their childhood, their telomeres get shorter as well. So there's this huge, huge different range of things that can happen in your environment that can reduce the length of your telomeres and therefore effectively accelerate this aspect of your aging. But what's exciting is that now from a scientific perspective, telomerase, and I did say that would turn out to be relevant. Oh, I was right, finally. <laughs> telomerase is the enzyme that our bodies have to extend those telomeres. And it's obvious that we have to have that, right? Because if you have a kid, you know, say you're in your 30s or even your 40s, you know, mothers can have children and the fathers could be older still. And yet, nonetheless, the kid is born young. The baby comes out, you know, absolutely fresh as a baby. And so um, there must be some way for ourselves to extend those telomeres. We don't want our kids to be born with our sort of uh, withered, aged telomeres. So it is activated in certain cells. And actually, there's now some science going on to try and work out how to activate that selectively in adult cells. So as not to increase the risk of cancer, because cells that divide lots of times uh, have the capacity to divide lots of times can become a tumour. But at the same time, we can perhaps activate that telomerase temporarily, extend our telomeres and get some of the longevity benefits without increasing the risk of cancer at the same time. Now, let's talk about protein problems. I'll put that, put it under there. Now, the first, now I know I've got this wrong, autophagy? Autophagy. Autophagy. I and I but don't I know Americans if Americans may pronounce it slightly differently. <laughs> I don't know if we got the British pronunciation there, but I'll spell it for you since we're on the radio. It's auto, A-U-T-O, and then phagy is P-H-A-G-Y, autophagy. What is that and what does it relate to when it goes awry? So you mentioned protein problems as a sort of overarching uh, class of different things that go wrong. So the proteins, uh, we, we think of protein as a constituent of our food. I think, you know, I imagine it often just as something that you see on the side of a food packet in the nutritional information. But actually proteins are incredibly varied. They're the molecular machines, they're the molecular scaffolding that holds much of our bodies together. It does most of the microscopic work that, you know, powers being alive. 
And so these proteins, as you get older, they can accumulate problems, and that's one of the things that causes us to age. But one of the tools that we've got in our armory to prevent that happening is this process of autophagy. And so the auto means self, the phagy means eating. And so it's the process by which cells effectively eat parts of themselves. They gobble up aged proteins and they recycle them. So it's a sort of molecular recycling process. And what we found is that if you... Um, if you reduce the amount of calories or the amount of food that an animal takes in, it gets less protein in its diet. And that means in order to make the new proteins that it needs to carry on with its function, it will engage in this autophagy. It'll gobble up some of its own proteins, then produce new ones that can do whatever it needs to do in the cell. And actually, we found that this autophagy process does seem to preferentially degrade the aged, damaged proteins. So that means not only is it a form of recycling, sort of reuse of resources, it also preferentially gets rid of these problematic things that accumulate as we get older. And so trying to regulate this autophagy, preferably without having to go on a really, really harsh diet, is one of the approaches that we're using to try and slow aging by proteins. So vegetarian for a week every so often might be a good idea? Oh, people go to much more extreme lengths than that. So these, <laughs> these calorie restriction studies that are done in animals, they cut back the amount they eat by almost half, and they find that the mice live 40% longer, and they, they don't seem to live longer in ill health. It's not as though they're just so hungry they can't even muster the energy to die. They actually seem to get less cancer, less heart disease. All of these things that we associate with aging is reduced in these mice. And people who uh, they do fasting, some people don't eat anything for a day a week or two days a week. There are even some people, and I have absolutely no idea how they manage this, they say that the best way to activate your, your autophagy is not to eat for a week every few months. And that really, really gets some of that recycling going. The evidence for that is, you know, it's certainly not in a position where I'm, I'm happy to recommend it. And thankfully, you know, <laughs> for those of us who like our food, <laughs> the evidence isn't strong enough that I feel compelled to do it myself either. And as I recall from our last interview, you said, uh, yeah, actually, you actually stay hungry the whole time. Calorie restrictions, you stay hungry. Yeah, you do. So it's, it's incredible. The willpower that must be required of people doing these various different modes of calorie restriction. Incredible. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Andrew Steele, a former research fellow at the Francis Crick Institute in London. He's here today with Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. And we're talking today about the science of aging, which say an extension, a follow on to our interview several months ago, talking strictly about the science or you can talk about anything you want, Andrew. You don't have to keep it, keep it to science here. One of the things that people who are in the over 50 and sometimes over 40 categories say to me in trying to understand any of this is that when they took biology in high school, it was a very big book. But they said, you know, you'd open the book and here'd be a protein or here'd be a cell or here'd be nothing moved. Mm. Everything was flat, two dimensional. They would do things to make it look three dimensional, but nothing moved. Everything was static. And today when they're teaching science, they're doing it in 3D visuals and all this type of thing. The idea that your proteins are constantly moving, you, you've produced a machine, literally, and that your cells, I mean, this is a concept they didn't have, even though they took uh, biology all those years ago. I think it's absolutely incredible. I think it's, it's, it's really worth doing an internet search for some of these uh, videos of simulations of the molecular motion inside your cells, because it's just, it's mind boggling. Uh, I was talking about replicating DNA earlier. You can get these videos where they, people have taken the atomic structure, so the position of every single atom in these proteins, and they've worked out through a series of absolutely painstaking experiments how these things move and you can watch it sort of working its way slowly along the dna molecule incorporating new bases these new chemical letters that allow it to make the second strand and there are just 
they're just absolutely mind-blowing. It's incredible that we now have the ingenuity and the, you know, the scientific skills to work out what's going on at this incredibly tiny level. And it's all happening so fast. All the processes on this molecular level, they're happening in, in nanoseconds. And it, it's, it's incredible to imagine all of this stuff buzzing around in our cells you know, right now as we're talking, as everyone's listening to this. There's just absolute chaos, organized chaos, I should say, inside our bodies. So when they accuse you of being lazy because you're sitting on the a couch watching the third <laughs> sports game. Okay, I am so busy. I'm exhausted. I think that's... On the molecular level, absolutely knocking it out of the park. <laughs> now, amyloids. We're still on the, on the protein problems. And what I'm grouping is protein problems. It may turn out you'll say you got your groups wrong. Um, is we have amyloids. Now, most people know this for the amyloid plaque, which is found on the brains of Alzheimer's patients and can only be found after they uh, pass away. What are amyloids? Uh, they must have something to do with more than Alzheimer's. We're really starting to think that they do, yeah. So amyloids are a type of protein that have got a, a slight error in how they were manufactured or how they were folded up after they were created. And what happens is they sort of, they join together into this massive protein conger, effectively, this enormous chain of identical misfolded proteins. And they can eventually, if they get, you know, if they're numerous enough, join together into these plaques. And these are the things that were first identified uh, in the sort of pathology of Alzheimer's disease. This uh, scientist Alzheimer back at the turn of the 20th century was dissecting people's brains. And he found these enormous plaques inside their brains and reason that that must be what's causing their dementia. What we now know is there are lots of different proteins in the body. There are literally hundreds of proteins that can form different versions of these amyloid plaques. And obviously, there's a huge interest in working out you know, what goes wrong in dementia and how that Alzheimer's is related to amyloid. And actually, it's it's really interesting to see that the what's called the amyloid hypothesis, the hypothesis that the amyloid is the primary causal factor in dementia, is really, uh, let's say, undergoing a bit, of a, a bit of a shift in recent years because there have been literally dozens and dozens of drugs. And we're now actually very, very good at removing that amyloid. But the problem is you can remove the amyloid completely from a patient's brain, perhaps, but they don't see any cognitive improvement. And so clearly there's some other stuff going on in Alzheimer's. What I would say from an aging science point of view is, although there's loads of fascinating theories about maybe Alzheimer's is a sort of type of diabetes that's specific to the brain, or maybe it's caused by some infectious agents, there, there are a whole load of different ideas that are going around. But clearly, young brains don't have this amyloid, and old brains do. So as an aging scientist, I think we should probably, you know, I'm actually quite glad that we've got some of these drugs in our back pocket that can get rid of it, because perhaps once we've removed some of these other things that might also be causing Alzheimer's, I'd you know, far rather have an amyloid-free brain than one that's amyloid, even if we don't know exactly what problems it's causing. Outside of the brain, um, this, probably the most common cause of death for supercentenarians, and what that means is a centenarian is someone who lives to over the age of 100. A supercentenarian lives to over the age of 110. So these really are incredibly, incredibly old people. And they're sort of biological miracles. How it is that they manage to live that long is a, a huge area of study. And then obviously the question becomes what's going to go on to kill them? And actually they die of something called transtheretin amyloidosis. So this is another protein called transtheretin, which is found in the blood. And it can end up stiffening the heart and the arteries and uh, basically, you know, strangling your heart and stopping its electrical activity, which which causes it to beat. And it's very, very hard to do these incredibly detailed autopsies on the supercentenarians, and there's not a full consensus yet. But actually, I think it's really important. It illustrates the importance of looking ahead to people who've made it so much further through life, because it might be that if we cure all the other hallmarks of aging, maybe, you know, transtheretin amyloidosis is going to be waiting for all of us in our 110s. And so it's just really important to scan the horizon and look out for these things that could be causing us problems later down the road. Now, here's something I definitely did not ask you about at all during our last interview. It's called, or they are called, adducts, A-D-D-U-C-T-S, adducts. Mm. What are they? 
these are bits that stick onto our protein basically and this is on a sort of chemical molecular level i mentioned earlier actually these very reactive chemicals in our body things like oxygen things like sugar and what they can do is they can go and stick to a protein in a certain place and they can alter the structure of that protein by being sort of dangling off the side and actually they can even uh, the, the, multiple of these adducts can stick together and you can end up creating a bridge between two proteins that can lock those proteins together and let's think of an example because that all sounded very sort of chemical and abstract didn't it uh, let's think about the collagen which is one of the key structural proteins in the body it's a few kilograms of most adults body weight so it's incredibly abundant this stuff makes up um, some of our skin it makes up some of our bones and it's different properties making you know, skin flexible and supple um, its strength makes our bones strong and so on and so on depending on where it's found in its exact structure and because its structure is so critical to making sure that it is you know supple in the skin strong in the bones and so on modifying the structure with sugars as we age is actually thought to be one of the things that reduce the elasticity of our skin perhaps more importantly than the wrinkles it causes is reducing the elasticity of our arteries which is one of the things behind high blood pressure and obviously it can cause all kinds of alterations all around the body and so looking at how these adducts accumulate with time and the changes they cause to those proteins and the changes that goes on to cause the tissues is one of the perhaps key, uh, I, I would say most neglected forms of uh, study into the aging process. Because typically we spend a lot of time, you know, we worry about the DNA, we worry about all this stuff that's going on inside cells. But these adducts are commonly found in the proteins outside cells. The collagen forms something called the extracellular matrix, which means the matrix of proteins outside cells. And I think we're learning more and more about how, just how important that is in normal biology and the sheer number of ways it can go wrong in aging. Not a good thing if they stick together incorrectly. <laughs> not intended. Not Really not ideal. They need to slide. They need to do all these incredibly complicated things. And any interruption to that is basically bad news. I always think of those, uh, what they call the three-legged races that they have, like when you're kids, mm. and they, they take two <laughs> of you and they wrap one together. It's like, okay, you can never go as fast as you can individually. It's <laughs> almost like the same thing. It's a metaphor, a metaphor. Now, it's a good metaphor. Now let's move to epigenetic alterations. What is epigenetic and how does it relate to the functioning of our DNA? Epigenetics, uh, let's think about the name for a minute because that's the clearest way to understand what it is. Genetics is studying the DNA and that's studying the genes that make up the instruction manual to life. And epigenetics means sort of above or on top of that genetics. And so if you imagine your DNA as the instruction manual, then actually it's not just a, you know, a very plain instruction manual. It's covered in, you know, people have folded over the corners of the instructions. They've made little notes in the margin, all saying, you know, use this protein. This is really important. Or actually, we don't really need this one at the moment. So, you know, maybe we should turn this particular gene off. And it's an answer to the mystery of how is it that every cell in your body has the same DNA, the same two meter stretch, the same 20,000 genes. And yet you have eye cells and you have heart cells and you have liver cells, which all look fantastically different. They're performing fantastically different functions, but with the same genetic instruction manual. And the answer is that the epigenetics are able to turn on and off the relevant genes. They turn on the liver function genes in liver. They turn on the you know things that make neurons, brain cells work when they're in your brain and so on. And what's, uh, what we've discovered is like almost every process in biology, this epigenetics can go wrong as you age. The marks start being put down in the wrong places. You get too few in some places, too many in others. And actually, we can come up with something called an epigenetic clock, which seems to measure your biological age. So by looking at the positions of these epigenetic marks, and in particular, the most studied is something called a methyl group, so methylation of DNA. Um, we can look at where those are in your genome, and we can work out how old you are to within a few years. Now, obviously, that's in some ways not exciting because we've already got a technology that can do that much more accurately and much more cheaply, which is called birth certificates. But what's <laughs> interesting about this epigenetic age is it seems to be reflective of our actual underlying biological age. Say you're you know, 50, but your biological age is 55. 
then that person has got what we call epigenetic age acceleration. And just like those people with shorter telomeres, they're more at risk of death, they're at more risk of various kinds of diseases. And thankfully, again, as with telomeres, you can have the converse, you know, you can be biologically younger than your chronological age number of candles on your birthday cake would suggest. So if you're you know, chronologically 50, 50 but your um, biological age is 45, then you've got a reduced chance of death and you're healthier. And what's most exciting about this, apart from the sort of slightly morbid ability to perhaps predict when it is you're going to die, we can hopefully use this to test anti-aging treatments. I've been speaking with Dr. Andrew Steele in a science-focused follow-on to Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we look beyond what betrays our age and look forward to reversing our age. Sound good? We'll hear from Stanford's Dr. Tom Rando, the co-founder of Fountain Therapeutics. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Dr. Andrew Steele in a follow-on interview about the science in his recent book, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. In a sense, this isn't a fountain of youth so much as a fountain of staying healthy as long as you naturally can, you know, and just putting natural repair mechanisms in and treating it so that the whole body can be equally aged throughout. It's sort of like, I think of your car, everything is aging throughout. And so we are aging throughout. So you can't just put new tires on it, put new brakes and expect the whole system to work. So finding those things that are aging more rapidly than we are can actually sort of smooth out our aging process. So we're equally aging and all the aspects of our bodies. Would that be a good sense of it? I think so. And I think that the idea of the hallmarks as being like, you know, the, the wear on the tires and the uh, the rust on the body and that sort of thing. You can imagine that addressing any one of these individually might only 
extend the lifespan importantly i guess the sort of health span of your car how long it can healthily drive around for by a small amount whereas if we combine these treatments together hopefully we can get a much bigger increase and i think the way that you can think about the epigenetic clock is it might be there's some clever way of measuring if i measure the tread depth on your tires and i measure the wear on the engine and i measure this that and the other i can then predict how old your car is and predict how soon it's going to have to go to the scrap heap and actually that's the sort of analogy i think with, with what we're trying to do here now let's talk about accumulation of senescent cells i love that word what it couldn't hurt you senescent cells what are senescent cells so senescence is the biological word for aging old, basically. And these are cells that are literally old in themselves. You know, these, these little individual parts of our body, these cells grow old. And the problem is that as we get older, we accumulate more and more of these cells in our body. So when you're young, these cells accumulate, but your immune system is very good at clearing them up. But as you get older, you have a variety of factors which conspire to make them more numerous. So the first thing is they, they occur more frequently. So the reasons that a cell might become senescent are things like it's got short telomeres, we already mentioned. It's got a lot of damage to its DNA, a lot of mutations, which again, we've already mentioned. And that means that as you get older, your telomeres are shortening, your DNA is getting damaged, it's getting mutated. And so uh, your cells effectively put on the brakes. I said earlier that cells are constantly dividing. You know, the re one of the reasons for this is to renew tissues, things like your skin and your lining of your intestines are turning over constantly, creating fresh cells to replace the dead ones that have fallen off. And as a result, your cells are constantly dividing to replace them. And all of that, you know, conspires to cause these senescent cells to become more frequent. And senescent cells don't divide. That's their key feature. And the reason that they don't divide, say you've got very short telomeres or say you've got mutations, your body looks at that cell sort of eyeing it with a bit of suspicion. Because if a cell is divided a lot of times, it looks like it could be at risk of becoming cancerous. Because that, as we said, you know, that's what cancer is. It's a cell that divides and divides and divides indefinitely and forms a tumour. So this non-division seems to be an anti-cancer mechanism. And in young people, your immune system will swing by and gobble up those cells and everything's great. But as you get older, you're accumulating more of these cells. Your immune system is getting less effective at clearing them up. And as a result, you get more and more and more of them. And even worse, the signals that these cells send out to call the immune system over, they sort of say, hey, I'm senescent, I'm over here. You know, can you come and sort me out? These very signals can actually cause an acceleration of the aging process. And so, you know, when this happens, you get an increased risk of all kinds of diseases, uh, heart disease, uh, stroke, dementia, all of these things seem to be somehow related to senescent cells. And actually, ironically, when they become numerous enough, they can even go on to increase the risk of cancer. So something that started out as an anti-cancer defense can accelerate the whole of the aging process, ultimately, even the risk of cancer itself. And this sort of brings us to this idea of cellular exhaustion. What is that? So the idea is that there are a variety of different calamities that can befall your cells, basically. One of them is this senescence. They can also just die. There's a process called apoptosis where cells commit suicide for the benefit of the broader organism, and you can start losing cells that way. There are various other ways which cells can die that are messier than apoptosis, and they're sort of not as intentional. But ultimately, you know, this variety of factors conspire to mean that your body can run out of cells that it needs. And I think the clearest example of this is various kinds of stem cell. So um, stem cells are the cells that replenish these cells in your body. And I already mentioned that places like your skin and your intestines, these are places where cellular turnover is very high. So uh, quite a significant fraction of the dust around your house is dead skin cells that have uh, fallen off the surface of your skin, basically. And what happens is that top layer of skin cells is constantly being worn off by various processes and cells underneath are growing up to fill that gap and, you know, continue renewing the surface of your skin. 
But if those stem cells start to become exhausted, perhaps they dwindle in numbers, perhaps some of them become senescent, they're unable to, um, to, 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 to reproduce, to divide and perform this function. And as a result, the, you know, that, that's one of the things that factors into skin aging. And that can happen all around the body. As these cells um, start to dwindle, as they start to dwindle in both number and in capacity, that's something that can accelerate aging throughout the body because this division is so important to its normal function. Now, speaking of the gut, uh, and we talked about this last time, but it bears repeating, you can look at the changes in my microbiome and you can determine my age within, and anyone's age, just not mine, uh, within four years because of how the microorganisms are in balance and, and present, I believe, in my gut. This is something that's really emerged only in the last few years because we finally started you know, applying this laser scrutiny to what's going on inside our guts. We've discovered these, uh, these billions and billions of microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, viruses, which are found particularly in particularly large concentrations in our intestines. And we know that they help us to digest food. We've also just found they've got more and more roles as we've understood a little bit more about them over the last few years. We found that they can cooperate with our immune systems, try and get bad bacteria out of the gut. Um, and they also seem to be implicated in the aging process. And I think the most fascinating studies are uh, in fish. So these are fish called killifish. And they only live for a few months because in their natural environment, they live in these what are called ephemeral pools. These are very, very short lived ponds in Africa, which basically get made in the rainy season. Then they evaporate and evaporate and evaporate and they, then they're gone. And so these fish have to grow up, reproduce, lay their eggs, and their eggs can stay in the sort of dried out mud until the rainy season comes back again and allows them to, you know, this life cycle to continue. But what's really interesting about these killifish is that because they're vertebrates, they're animals with backbones like us, they've got a gut just like we have, obviously, because they've, you know, they've got to eat and digest their food. That means they, too, have a complicated microbiome. It's not something like a nematode worm, which are these tiny little worms often used in aging research, has a very simple microbiome. The killifish actually has a you know, very, very complicated, almost human-like one. And what we found is that by giving old killifish, so this is obviously killifish that are just a few months old, because that's what old means in their terms, um, by giving them the microbiome, a transplant from a younger fish, we can sort of swap their microbes over, we can make these fish appear to get younger. They live a little bit longer. They also sort of dart around the tank a bit more in a sort of uh, fishy proxy for delayed frailty. And what this suggests to us and other work in mice and the sort of beginnings of work in humans is that the state of our microbiome actually affects the state of our health overall. And the real question is actually, I've used this word reflects, but we don't really know which way the causality runs. And I think given the complexity of biology, it's likely to be both ways because your deteriorating health, your deteriorating immune system uh, causes your microbiome to deteriorate. But I'd also be very surprised if the, the, some of the causality doesn't run the other way. And that hopefully by improving the health of that microbiome, we can also improve the health of the rest of the body. Now, of course, you have a number of recommendations in the book uh, about how to live longer. My favorite being, be a woman. <laughs> Got that one knocked. <laughs> it's right. my least favorite for some reason. <laughs> I don't know what, where that comes from. Um, and, uh, and other than noticing or rather documenting that women live longer, has science been able to figure out why women live longer? It's a great question. And the answer, the short answer is no, we just don't know. The longer answer is there are a variety of competing explanations, some of which are social and some of which are biological. The more social explanations are, uh, well, basically us men, you know, we're a bit stupid. I'll, I'll take, take well, one from my gender. That could be it. That's scientific. <laughs> it's certainly a factor. And 
in fact, you know, the, the, the stupidity can manifest through, you know, we, we fight a lot, we drink a lot, we smoke a lot, we do all these terrible things for our health. Being a bit kinder to men, also historically, we've, we've typically taken on much um, more sort of physically demanding occupations, much more dangerous occupations, so that could be part of it as well. Um, some of that is driven by testosterone, which, you know, effectively makes us stupid. But it's also, in some ways, perhaps, and we're not entirely sure how this manifests itself, but it might be acting on a more biological level as a suicide hormone. And the reason that we think that is because men are at increased risk, not just of you know, deaths from things like smoking and car accidents, but are also at increased risk of death from basically all causes. And that's a risk that suddenly uh, that, that divergence happens during puberty. So it seems that men, as soon as their testosterone gets activated, are at much, much higher risk of death. And a fascinating case study of this is that men who have been, um, men who have had their testicles removed, so eunuchs, um, there are historical case studies of this. And you can look back at the Korean court, the court of the Korean emperor, uh, living back in the sort of 17th and 18th centuries. And the Korean emperor was served by this administrative uh, division of eunuchs, which is an incredibly bizarre thing. What's even more bizarre is that these eunuchs, although obviously they couldn't reproduce themselves, there is nonetheless a eunuch family tree because they were able to adopt children. And then obviously the, the boys, of the, the, the male children, had their testicles removed as well. And so the sort of eunuchs had this strange genealogy and they kept meticulous records. And what they found is that those eunuchs lived dramatically longer than people of a similar social class at the same time. So I think the emperor's life expectancy was typically in the sort of 40s and 50s, whereas some of these eunuchs, and remember, this is in the 1600s. This is a time when life expectancy was 30 years old. So the emperors are living a bit longer than sort of the, the man in the street, as it were. But the eunuchs were living, some of them into their hundreds. I think there are four examples of eunuch centenarians. And it's just absolutely incredible to think, you know, what is, what is it that about this lack of testosterone that appears to be extending their lifespan? So that's one of the theories. Um, and I think it's going to be a while before we really get to the bottom of that, just because there are so many these sort of complicated social factors overlaying on the biological ones. It's you know going to be a bit of a head scratcher for a while. Well, we're dedicating this interview to the Galapagos tortoise, and they live a couple of centuries, give or take a decade. We don't quite know. We haven't been around to do that. Now, I'm willing to bet that the Galapagos tortoise doesn't take a brisk walk three times a week and watches his or her <laughs> diet. But do we know if female Galapagos tortoises live longer than males? Do you know what? I don't know off the top of my head. I bet somebody would. And I think what's really interesting, actually, is that so another theory as, as to why women live longer than men is that we can uh, is, is exemplified by the animal kingdom. So we can look out at birds, actually. And birds have this interesting property. So you might know from uh, sort of high school biology that the way that sex is determined in humans is our sex chromosomes. So women, you might remember who are, you know, people who are born women have an X and an X. Uh, people who are born men have an X and a Y chromosome as our final pair of chromosomes. Um, and that means that men have this, that, you know, to call these the X and the Y chromosome doesn't really uh, co properly convey how meager the Y chromosome is, how pathetic our male chromosome is. It's got far, far less genetic information. It's got far, far fewer genes. And what that means is if there's a problem with one of the genes that's on the X chromosome that you get from your mother as a man, you haven't got a backup copy because you've got this pathetic Y chromosome that's got you know, a handful of, comparative handful of genes on it. And whereas if you're a woman, you've got a second X chromosome. If there's a problem with one of the genes on the X chromosome from your mum, then the X chromosome from your dad might be able to bail you out. So that's one of the possible reasons that women, because they have these backups, are able to live longer. If we look to the animal kingdom, by contrast, birds have a different system of genetics, which means that actually it's the female birds that have the small stubby chromosome. And what we find is that male birds outlive the females. So that's another theory as to why it is that women live longer than men and humans. But the opposite is true in certain other parts of the animal kingdom. Now we're going to completely change subjects. And going into this next question, I want to ask you a sort of preparatory question. Um, in the United States, we talk about mathematics and we shorten it to math. 
everyone I know in Britain, you you shorten mathematics to maths. Yes. <laughs> What's up with that, Andrew? It's a very good question, isn't it? Where does that S come from? Because, I mean, there is an S on the end of mathematics, I guess, but uh, <laughs> that's just the way it's gone. Okay, well, there's a lot of math, so maybe we'll... well. Maths will will do. So just in the explanation there, you've been producing a number of YouTube videos, which are just terrific and as expected in the science area. Uh, However, you've now switched over to Wordle. You've produced one for Wordle and and, and you talk about the maths, plural, behind Wordle. (laughs) Tell us, tell us about that and, uh, and tell us about the maths behind Wordle. So if anyone's missed this internet phenomenon, this is a game that started out, I think it really became active online in sort of January this year. People started playing this game where you get six guesses to guess a five-letter word. And the idea is that you make a guess and that guess contains certain letters. And depending on which letters you get right that are actually found in the word that's the answer, it colours those letters indifferently. And slowly but surely you have to try and uh, guess words that get closer and closer. And hopefully, you know, within your six tries, guess the word, um, guess guess the word that is the secret word for that day. And... Um, I thought this was a really fascinating... Firstly, it's just it's, it's a great fun game to play. I'd really recommend it for anyone who's missed out on this so far. But secondly, it just struck me as very much being a math or maths problem in disguise, because although this thing sounds like a word game, actually it's all about combinations of letters. It's about uh, how frequently those letters occur. And I wondered if I could come up with a mathematical way of solving this game, the most efficient way to get to the end of Wordle. And actually the question I think a lot of people most often ask is what's the best opening guess to give you the most possible information about what the word might be? And it turns out you can use math to try and establish that answer. You can look at the words that are the possible answers. You can look at the words that are the possible guesses. You can work through all of that and try and use math to find the best starting word for Wordle. So that's what I set out to do in that video. Well, to me, a Wordle player, to me, it's not the first guess, but the first two guesses to get you mathematically in position. What are your first two guesses when you do any Wordle? Oh, it's a difficult one. I think so. I, I play it with my wife. We've got a sort of a cutesy uh, couple play going on. And I think that we often start with stone and chair because those have got quite a lot of the vowels covered. It's quite good to have an S in first place. But actually, that isn't the mathematically optimal answer. Uh, because when a computer plays this, the computer's got this sort of, um, it's got a skill that we haven't, which is that it can look over all 2,300 of the Wordle answers at the same time. And it can try and um, work out the optimal way to break up those words into groups that are easy to find. And so my algorithm actually starts with the word trace. And it's really fascinating delving into the maths of why it does that. Really interesting. Now, I start with the word Moira. We say, well, there's no proper names. Lowercase, it means fate. And that gets you O. I and A plus R frequently used. And, and M is pretty good, pretty in the middle there. Do you know what? I might try that tomorrow. And then my next one, or my second one, feuds. Hmm. F-E-U-D-S. Yes, S is very popular. you got to have that. And E-U, you've got all five vowels. That's pretty good. You've got an excellent name. <laughs> F-D. I do. I do. And so this is, I've given it out to the world now. So you've tried this because it may not be so cozy when you beat your wife. But at any rate, so you've got that. And then you might need a Y. And that's when you can always do something like baggy or, you know, and, and then you've got uh, G's and the Y in the last place because there's absolutely no letter left besides that. So you go down, you don't actually get a, you know, you, you won't solve it on the second guess as uh, if you if you're looking at it that way. But you always get down. So we'll mathematically look at this. I think I'm really excited about it.
And I think, yeah, what you, what you find is it's almost impossible, even playing optimally, to get it on the second guess. Because you know, if you think about 2,300 words, which is the number of answers there are in Wordle, like you need to come up with a word that somehow splits them up such that you can spot what the word is in the second guess. It's just, it's basically not going to be possible. Obviously, you can get lucky and it happens occasionally, but even the computer playing optimally solves the game in about three and a half guesses, which means it basically half the time gets it in three, half the time gets it in four, and then there are a few other you know things on either side of that. So basically, if, you, if you're averaging three or four, you're doing very, very well. Now, what's your third guess after stare, excuse me, after stone and share? So normally, I think the, the optimal way of playing is to actually start to adapt your guesses. Certainly, the first guess is basically, you know, a stab in the dark. The second guess can be somewhat educated, but often involves just trying to, you know, grab a few letters. But I think by the third one, you've really got to start thinking about what the, what, you know, what the knowledge you have is, because at that point, you have some information about that next word. And I know that some people, I've, I've really noticed this in the comments of the YouTube videos, some people just, their first four or even five guesses are just to guess as many letters in the alphabet as they possibly can and basically turn the whole game into an anagram. And that just isn't so much fun to me as trying to sort of do the intellectual jigsaw of finding out what that word might be based on the constraints you have. And I think one of the things that I've really learned from looking at the math behind it is that you have to try and um, break up your field of guesses. So for example, if you think there are three or four possible words, rather than guessing one of those possible words, it's sometimes better to guess a, com a word that contains a combination of letters that allows you to work out which of those four words it might be, and then you can go for the kill. <laughs> patience, patience. Oh, the multi-talented Dr. Andrew Steele. Thank you so much. I look forward to you coming back again. I hope you will join us in the future. Very much hope so too. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Steele a former research fellow at the Francis Crick Institute in London. He's here today with Ageless, the new science of getting older without getting old. It's published by Doubleday. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. It's one thing to talk about aging, but how is science pursuing the reversal of aging? Here is an excerpt from a 2020 interview with Fountain Therapeutics co-founder, Dr. Thomas Rando, about their work to do just that. Now, let's start with the science. And I understand that uh, part of this science is quite old, maybe into the middle of the 19th century. What science are we talking about? So... Um, in the early 2000s, we did some experiments um, that use this technique called parabiosis. Now, and let parabiosis, me just interrupt. Let me just interrupt yeah. you for a second. Yeah. For you people who are not quite sure you like animal research, why don't you go get a cup of coffee or turn it down for a little bit and then rejoin us later? But for the rest of you, listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. Go ahead. Okay, so this is why Morris said you might want to uh, take a seat. So what we were doing is we were actually surgically connecting young animals to old animals in this technique called parabiosis. Um, and that technique has been around since the mid-19th century. And it has been used over the decades really to study a lot of different aspects of biology and, and medicine, um, understanding fields ranging from endocrinology to immunology. And we use this to study aging. And, and the way we did this is we would connect a young animal to an old animal and they would essentially become like conjoined twins. So they would have one common circulatory system. So the blood would flow from one animal to the other. And now how did you do that? I mean, were these mice? What were these? These were mice. These were mice. And so you just kind of, I mean, it's probably more complicated than this, but basically you just sort of 
picked up the skin flap and put them together, or did you literally join tissue inside? It's actually more simple, like you you're, you initially said. So we just basically open up the skin and staple the skin together, and so they're side by side, and they spontaneously develop connections in their blood vessels from one animal to the other. So we don't even do that surgically. That happens over the course of a few weeks. And when that happens, the animals are sharing their circulatory factors, what's in their blood. And what we found, which was really striking, is that when you connect a young animal to an old animal, the the old mouse starts to acquire features of the young mouse. And conversely, there's no free lunch here, the young mouse starts to acquire features of an old mouse. So it seems as if in the one case, there's sort of a a rejuvenation going on. And in the other case, there looks like it's an accelerated aging. So here we have the young and the old. And over time, they take on the characteristics of the other. And we believe it's, we're seeing it transferred in the blood. Yeah. And and experiments that we and others did um, really started to convince us that there really were components of the blood that were being shared that were the Essentially, the the information was being carried. So, for example, if you take blood from a young animal and transfuse it repeatedly into an old animal, you can get similar effects. So just a a, a series of, of recurrent blood transfusions can give some of the effect that we see with this parabiosis technique. So it really does seem as if the blood is carrying the information to make old cells younger and young cells older. But how do we know what it is that's making all the difference? Well, that's that's the million-dollar question. So if we look, blood is complicated. So if you look at blood, and I'm talking about not just the cells in the blood, like the red blood cells and the white blood cells, but all the other um, material proteins and lipids and other things that are just being carried in the blood, it's very, very complex. And so it's not simple just to say, okay, let's just go find out what's in old blood that's making young cells age faster, or what's in young blood that seems to be rejuvenating old, old cells. So we've, we've started to, to look in this, and we and others have tried to simplify what's in blood to identify perhaps proteins or other components that might be making um, or having this effect and really driving these, uh, these aging processes in one direction or the other. Um, so this is, this is ongoing. Um, there are companies that have been formed. There's a lot of academic research uh, in two ways, both trying to identify what these magic factors are, how many of them there are, how many are needed, and is there really a balance between young factors and old factors that, that make this difference? Now, of course, you do a lot of research at the university level. You're a professor of neurology and neurological sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. You direct the Glenn Laboratories for the Biology of Aging, and you're deputy director of the Stanford Center on Longevity. So you're a busy guy doing a lot of things at the university and research and teaching and everything else. But... Here we have Fountain Therapeutics. How do you get the research over into a company? That's always a challenge. And, and in fact, that's it's sort of called the valley of death, where you have all <laughs> these interesting findings that are happening in the university, and not many of them make their way really into therapies for humans. So um, that's the challenge. I mean, this this idea for this company came to me really a long time ago, really, when we first had these these results with parabiosis. But at that time... It was difficult to found a company on aging. It was m- much more 
um, it was considered much more difficult and if not impossible to ever really develop therapeutics related to, to aging biology. And that's changed really over the last 20 years. And now there are many companies that are in this, in this space. And really it was, it was a, a combination of that, you know, the advancement of the science, the development of uh, basically investors who would be willing to uh, fund companies that were in, in this space. And in our case, Fountain Therapeutics that we founded, um, also the development of a lot of um, artificial intelligence that we use to help us really identify many of these processes that are occurring that we think are accelerated aging or rejuvenation. So we really took the, the data um, that we had published, so it was really public data, and we just said, can we, can we develop a company based on these ideas that would allow us to screen for drugs, for example, mm-hmm. or screen for things that are in blood that can drive a cell to become older or younger. And that's essentially what Fountain Therapeutics is, is about. Now, you mentioned that word, AI, artificial intelligence. Tell us, what are you doing? So, um, at Fountain, really, it's machine learning. And so, let me, let me give you a, a, an analogy. So, let's say you take a thousand pictures of young people and a thousand pictures of old people and you teach a computer this is what a young person looks like this is what an old person looks like and then you take a picture of a person the computer's never seen and you say is this a young person or is this an old person so computers are are very good at learning that kind of information and then being able to take new information and and put it into a category so for example a young person or old person so we've basically using a microscope and a computer taught the computer what cells look like that are young and old and and everything in between. And so what we can do is we can take a cell, we can treat it with a drug, and we can ask the computer now, has that cell become younger or older? And it's very good at telling us which direction the drug is is driving the cell. So that's the machine learning, the artificial intelligence part that 20 years ago, we would have had to do this the old-fashioned way and, and look at it ourselves and try and say, I can tell the difference between a young cell and an old cell, but the computer is much, much better and much, much faster. This is not around the corner. Um, we, have, we have a long way to go. And, and yet, I'd, I would say that the, the optimistic view is there are compounds that they are already in use. And I mentioned metformin. Um, one, one could even argue that uh, cholesterol-lowering agents have this kind of feature of changing the, the trajectory of, of biological aging. There are a lot of compounds that are in use that were not developed for this but have some of these effects. So e- even though it's a ways away, it's, it's, not, it's not so much science fiction as it is re-looking at current science and thinking of it in a somewhat different way and certainly thinking about therapeutics in a somewhat different way. Dr. Thomas Rando is the co-founder of Fountain Therapeutics. More information is available at FountainTX.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell. 
with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.